Hey folks, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the shed. Steve Edwards. How you doing? Coming from somewhat sunny Portland. It's finally warming up around here. Right. Dan Shapir. Back home in warm and sunny Tel Aviv. I'm Charles Maxwood. I'm coming at you from a broken standing desk. It doesn't go up anymore. Uh, we have a special guest this week, and that is Austin Gill. Austin, how's it going? Hey, doing well. Also here in Portland with uh, Chuck or with Steve. And yeah, the weather is getting really lovely. Come oh, visit. Nice. It's great. Good deal. Yeah, I need to visit Portland. I've never been. Okay, if you do, let me know. I <laughs> will take you out. I'll show you some fun things that are like off of the all top 10 things to do in Portland thing in Portland's list. <laughs> and uh, yeah, good place to eat. Lots of fun activities. Yeah, I haven't been to Portland in a long time, but my wife's best friend used to live out there and it, it was a fun town to visit for sure. Today, we're going to be talking about fundamentals and what's fundamentally wrong with being fundamental about fundamentals and, and not to get too fundamental or be fundamentalists. Um, <laughs> I, I think, okay, that was terrible. Anyway, I'm going to let Austin kind of talk a little bit about this because I, I think there's kinds of some ins and outs to the way that we talk about kind of the basics or the fundamentals. And he he explained it better than I did before the show is really what it boils down to. So, Well, thanks, Chuck. I don't know if I did, but I will do my best to, you know, get into it. Um, basically, yeah, I kind of proposed this topic because uh, I have spent a long time in, well, what I consider a long time, 10, 10 years, just, uh, just getting started to some of you, but um, what I consider like a long time in the web development space. And I think that uh, throughout these years, I have seen a lot of conversations around fundamentals that I think um, doesn't, doesn't, the word itself is just a loaded term that doesn't quite capture, um, it doesn't do it justice, justice. So we talk about fundamentals a lot in the conversations on uh, learning paths on how people should get started in web development mm -hmm. and where they should begin, whether they do framework first or uh, fundamentals first, or and that that kind of coincides with things like boot camps versus uh, going to school and getting a CS degree. And I, I think that the problem with this conversation is that it assumes that fundamentals are kind of um, you 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 can kind of just learn them and be done with them, or it assumes that everyone has the same learning patterns, or it assumes that everyone's coming from the same context or circumstance. And in reality, you know, there's no right answer to which one you should begin with or, or what you should choose for your journey. I think that uh, we, we tend to kind of see the things that work for us or discover later on the advice that we wish we would have had earlier on and try and assume that that's going to be what works for someone else. And that's so that's like part of the fundamentals. And the other the other sort of loaded term with fundamentals is that uh, it assumes that it's sort of beginner context. And in reality, I think that there's so much nuance. So a, a little bit of backstory here is, is the the sort of fundamentals that I've spent a lot of time focusing on uh, is I did a, a deep dive into how uh, forms work on the web. And more recently, a deep dive into how to upload files and how how to deal with file uploads in an application, both from you know just enabling it on the front end, receiving files on the back end, how to store them for performance and security and 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 cost effectiveness. And there's just 
you know, you get into these things that we call quote unquote fundamentals and that makes it seem like it should be easy and and in reality, these are very nuanced topics that, you know, takes a whole career to learn. So in that context, I really need the better definition, I guess, of what you actually mean by fundamentals. Because uh, it seems that you mean by, it seems like what you mean by fundamentals is functionality built into the browser. But as opposed to functionality that's provided by, I don't know, let's say frameworks that are implemented on top of the browser. But then you also refer to things that we might learn in a university course, which I take to mean things like, I don't know, recursion, data structures, stuff like that, which aren't necessarily related to a particular technology. Uh, I don't know that people who work in, in, you you know, vanilla JavaScript, as it's sometimes called, are more likely to use sophisticated data structures than people, let's say, working in React. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. So what exactly are you referring to or thinking about when you're, you know, uh, speaking about fundamentals? Yeah, so this is kind of the problem. Uh, You're highlighting the fact that, you know, I mentioned fundamentals is such a loaded term that can mean different things based on Mm -hmm. context. Uh, so if we're talking about uh, just computer science fundamentals, then, you know, those are things like uh, sorting algorithms or uh, design patterns or how uh, memory is allocated in the computer and uh, what garbage collection is and things like that, right? And these are often things that uh, you can go an entire career and never even know or understand and still be extremely successful. Um, but then in different contexts, like you said, in the context of uh, web development, maybe the fundamentals are what browser-specific APIs are available um, in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Uh, and when we're talking about uh, JavaScript programmers versus like framework authors, I think that there's even fundamentals that a given framework might provide, like building your Hello World uh, version of whatever language is hot of the week. Um, that's going to cover some of the fundamentals. So the problem is, I think that uh, we there there doesn't seem to be an appropriate term for all of these things, and yet they all sort of overlap. And uh, well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, one thing that I see too is that um, you know over the course of my career, I have picked up different technologies, different ideas. Sometimes we see things evolve, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I go and learn something that is foundational or fundamental to what I am working on today that you could consider um, fundamental. I'm making air quotes. I call them scary quotes when I make them, but um, I'm making air quotes around it because you know, yeah, it is fundamental to all kinds of work, but it hasn't been fundamental to any of the work that I've done yet, right? I haven't paid the price of not knowing it. And so, yeah, it it's a fundamental, but it's only a fundamental now because I'm doing something different from what I was doing before, if that makes sense. And so some of these things change, right? The other thing is, is that 
Um, and here's another example, and just to highlight this even further. So when I was in high school, I, I swam competitively. Um, and then I didn't do it for like 20 years. And then I picked up triathlons, right? So yeah, I'm one of those nut jobs that goes and does three sports as one sport. And, you know, I, I go out in the deep water with no life jacket and a wetsuit. And, uh, you know, I joined a swim team and I had a swim coach, you know, at 42, you know, teaching me swim fundamentals because I'd forgotten them because I'd been doing it for so dang long, you know. And so I got in the water and yeah, I was, I stayed afloat, and moved down the pool, but she was teaching me fundamentals on how to move faster, how to be more efficient in the water and things like that. And so that's the other thing is, is that sometimes we get into a practice where we kind of know the fundamentals. She didn't teach me anything I didn't already know, but she was able to point out where I failed on some of the fundamentals and I, you know, brought them back around. And so I think we've got this idea that it's all for beginners and that may not necessarily be the case, but they are things that we have to understand as a basis for the things that we're doing if we want to do them well. I do want to make a a few distinctions though. Uh, one, first of all, has to do with uh, some fundamentals that you just uh, mentioned, Austin. You referred both to search algorithms and to garbage collection in the context, let's say, of JavaScript developers. Now, realistically, JavaScript developers are, are wholly unlikely to ever implement a search algorithm because they'll probably just use the built-in sort, you know, in arrays. Um, so, knowing sort, uh, uh, knowing sorting uh, algorithms is more about, you know, maybe training your mind about how, how um, to develop algorithms to solve certain problems and, and you know, data structures and, and, and supporting technologies, not necessarily as direct technologies that you might be using day to day. On the other hand, you mentioned garbage collection. And in that context, even though that's, uh, again, quote unquote, fundamental technology, and you can get by without knowing, you know, what garbage collection does and how it works. I think that that lack of knowledge actually does, to an extent, cripple you. That's a bit of an extreme term, but it, you know, it limits you uh, in your abilities as, as a front-end or, or JavaScript developer. I think it's, it's such a, fundamental concept that not knowing it is a significant lack in your understanding of how this system works. And and another point that I wanted to make is that there are fundamentals beneath fundamentals. And they don't get any simpler. Usually they get ever more complicated. Uh, For example, we are all running on top of the browser browser is implemented by a lot of heavy-duty C++ code. Do you need to know C++ in order to, you know, properly use the browser? Well, obviously you don't, but, you know, somebody does. (laughs) I feel so inadequate. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's kind of this whole conversation that that fuels... uh, Well, to make a correction, Dan, I I think that my, my comment about the fundamentals in memory allocation and garbage collection and sorting algorithms that was in the context of uh, a comp- like someone that goes and gets a computer science degree versus someone that goes to a boot camp because those topics generally are probably not covered but then if you shift concept con- context to 
JavaScript, yeah, I don't, I ha- never have never had to worry about uh, garbage collection because JavaScript implements that for me. Like, I don't have to manual. Well, sorry, I have to know about it, but I don't have to manually implement garbage collection oh, like in other to, languages. Obviously. Uh, very few people, by, by the way, implementing garbage collection properly is, and, and efficiently is one of the harder things to do. You know, these are like the top developers who are working on garbage collection in the various uh, uh, platforms like the JVM or, or, or JavaScript engines. It's really difficult. But understanding the ba- some basic concept of, of garbage collection, like the, the distinction between memory that's no longer vi- needed versus memory that can no longer be used is, is fundamental, in my opinion, again, going back to that term, and not understanding that will mean that you, will, you have a strong potential of having leaks, memory leaks in your software Without even understanding what memory leaks mean, yeah, AJ looked like, like he uh, wanted so, to chime in. So I'm going to give yeah. him a shot real quick. Sure. No. <laughs> didn't? Okay. Never mind. <laughs> okay. So so the interesting thing, uh, you know, like it, it's fine to have these uh, sort of nebulous conversations uh, and you know flex our brain muscles about. Uh, hypotheticals or theoreticals, but I think sort of bringing this back to uh, a JavaScript conversation is, uh, Dan, to your point about understanding memory allocation um, and how that could influence uh, ultimately performance on the front end. This comes into things like knowing how, you know, what would be like a JavaScript fundamental of how uh, equality comparisons work in JavaScript, where you have objects versus uh, primitives. And, you know, understanding how comparing objects might cause bloating uh, of memory or, you know, being able to describe the difference between a map or when to use a map versus a weak map or something like that. Uh, And these things that, you know, especially, Dan, to, to your sake or your area of expertise in performance, like those are the things that could potentially lead to memory leaks. But they're so nuanced. And maybe nine times out of 10, it's not going to bite you in the butt whether you use a map versus a weak map. But then that one time, understanding what each one does, how they release the values that they're holding onto in memory, and how that has to sit in with your application is like fundamental and could be the critical piece to you know making the application work. From my well, experience of that... I, oh, go for I've it. never, I've Sorry. never had to learn that stuff because I've never run into a problem that was that important to me that this actually solved. Right. So specifically to that problem, if you're developing a regular, let's call it again, air quotes, website or web page that's loaded, you know, stays in the browser for some seconds to a couple of minutes, then you probably don't need to worry about memory. Because there, there's very little likelihood that you'll get anywhere close to running out of it. But if you're right. implementing a long-lived uh, uh, web page, like a uh, not just a single-page application, but one that you know hangs around for a lengthy period of time, I don't know, a Twitter or or a Facebook, or conversely, if you're developing for Node, and those 
issues can mm -hmm. become really significant really quickly. Um, yeah, or you just restart the server every you know month. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, that, we used to do that in Railsland. We don't do that anymore. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. But and even then, I mean, I mean, if you're like only have I don't know like fifty visitors a day, then then you know, then whatever. But if you have several thousands or tens of thousands, mm -hmm. which is not really out there these days, uh, yeah, you you probably want to be more efficient than that. Let's put it this way. But but going back to the fundamentals that you were talking about, my understanding that when you're talking about the fundamentals, what you really mean are the fundamentals of the web, which are the which are I guess HTML, CSS, JavaScript itself, the language, and HTTP. the browser and the HTTP and the browser DOM. Would those be the fundamentals that you're primarily referring to? <sighs> Yes, yes and no. I mean, like those are the primitives, right? And um, when we talk like fundamentals, this is the challenge with this conversation is is it is uh, very broadly encompassing. Like if we're saying just vanilla JavaScript and and uh, DOM APIs that are available in the browser, um, even that covers things that are so uh, uncommonly used that it's hard to say, well, this is a, like, you, you need to know about the, the web auth and our authentication API or whatever. And like, currently that's so infrequently used that do you call that a fundamental? Does that make it a fundamental just because it's part of the browser API or the DOM? Um, so... The I, DOM is huge. I think it would be hard to call yeah, something exactly. a fundamental that came in 20 years late. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay, so you know, is XML HTTP request is that a fundamental now? Because it's oh no, it's dead. <laughs> well, you know? there's. I would say the fundamental is understanding what a header is, and understanding what the basically what the event loop is. Those are the fundamentals. If you understand headers, body and the event loop, then it doesn't matter whether you use the XML HTTP abstraction or the fetch abstraction. The mm -hmm. fundamental would be the thing that when you understand the fundamental, you can understand what trade-offs the abstraction took. Yeah. And, and this, get, this gets really interesting, too, because at some point this says, well, you know, if you make the claim that uh, learning the fundamentals or understanding the fundamentals is better, maybe, maybe not, whatever. But if you go down that route, then you find um, you find a lot of discussion around uh, people preferring. Let's say let's take HTML, CSS kind of out of it for the moment, um, but just JavaScript. You say people, well, people that rally against frameworks, right? And then say, okay, well, vanilla JS is better, so you should use that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't in some context. But eventually, if you go long enough with a vanilla JavaScript solution, you end up building so many abstraction layers that you build your own framework or your own library. And then you have to recreate something. You know, it's like the generic discount store brand. Uh, and, and conversely, React. <laughs> and conversely, no framework, even the large, even the ones that are the most holistic, I don't know, in Angular, doesn't cover an, the entire DOM. 
and intentionally so. Yeah. I mean, what, whatever, you know, in React, we have use effect because, you know, we need to access the DOM outside of, of React every once in a while. And that's the escape hatch. And, you know, it's the escape hatch that everybody uses, which means that everybody really needs to be able to access the DOM for one thing or another. Um, so, um, I, I, I hesitate. I, I really co- consider the concept of fundamentals as, as the things that are underneath the, the common knowledge, as it were. So, and let's say we can kind of agree that if you're coming into the bootcamp route, you're probably learning React. Because that's like the the de facto standard these days for almost for how to build websites, and that's what boot camps teach. So the fundamentals would really be the technologies underlying React. If it's something that React doesn't even try to do itself, then I don't really know if that would be considered a fundamental. It's just something that you may may or may not need to use based on the type of, of applications that you're building? Sure. I, I think if I were to describe the fundamentals, it would be uh, the knowledge necessary to explain how fill-in-the-blank works or to, to explain what it's doing. So if we're talking about React, right, or building an application with React, maybe the fundamentals are like live within the context of React. But if we're talking about uh, how React's reactivity system works, then you have to understand maybe some deeper level fundamentals or primitives in the JavaScript ecosystem, uh, which talks about design patterns and, you know, uh, maybe like PubSub or, um, I don't know, I, don't, I actually don't know how the React uh, reactivity system works, but, but having the understanding of what the language has available that's powering it and being able to at least come up with some... Uh, reasonable explanation of how it can work and understanding things like why uh, you can't grab, you can't reference the title of the page or like the uh, the content of an H1 in a variable and then change the variable and see the DOM respond. That's not how the DOM works. And that's fundamental knowledge. But somehow React gets us in a, in a place where we can kind of do that with, with bindings, right? Um, so... So yeah, being able to kind of understand what's going on at a deeper level is what I would call the fundamentals. So and here's this, another This is essentially how I got into my career was I learned Rails, right? And then I yeah. learned Ruby afterward when there were places where I had a gap that I had to figure out. Sorry, Dan. And it goes saying? down. It goes down all the way until you yeah. get to one. You know, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> yeah, but but I think again that there is an interesting distinction here, because when you're looking at the concept of React running on top of the browser, then fundamentals might either be how the browser itself works underneath React, which means mm-hmm. you know the DOM, which and the is DOM. and the no, that's a distinction. So there's right. the browser itself as it works underneath React, but, you know, technologies that are not specifically tied to React. And then there are the fundamentals of React. So yes. 
So, and, and that's kind of different because, you know, if I'm using some other framework, which is not React, if I'm using Svelte, then I don't really need to know about the virtual DOM because there is no virtual DOM when I'm using Svelte. So then virtual DOM is not part of the fundamentals anymore when my stack is, is Svelte. But the browser DOM still is. Um, so, so even in that context, there are different types of fundamentals is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, that, yeah, like that, that this, the, the point of this whole discussion is, is sort of coming back to that idea is that it's, I, we're not going to reach the end of this show. Like, spoiler alert, if you're listening, uh, we're not going to reach the end of this show and, and have some conclusion or have some definition, right? It's a yeah, bit of a but, discussion, but I think we should also uh, bring into, like, it shouldn't be too heady. We can talk about some of the more practical uh, examples of where this shows up. So that, that's kind of where I wanted to go. Example? Yeah. Because, okay, ultimately, yeah. you know, I'm looking at this. I have people ask, the question I get asked all the time, besides how do you start a freaking podcast, is, how do I stay current on all the stuff coming out in JavaScript, right? And so they're looking at all the new stuff. But it's just, it's a, a lot of times, you know, some of it's the same question. How do I how do I know what the fundamentals are in my case, right? And then how do I go go learn those so that I can be effective in whatever comes next? Yeah. So it, in my experience, um, a lot of my time lately has been spent. Uh, playing and, and learning with some of these different frameworks and transitioning to figure out how it is that they, like, how do you do this in this flavor? And, and I've gone uh, most recently in the Vue world with Nux.js, uh, in the React world with Remix, uh, been playing around with Quick and with Solid. And they're all cool for their own particular reasons. Um, it takes a lot of knowledge and experience to understand what it is that makes it different and why that is uh, significant. And to understand how how the implementation details are different, right? And 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 I think that that's where you you need a solid, not that you need having a solid understanding of the fundamentals of how the browser works, how JavaScript works, how HTML works, what's available in the DOM. You know, if you're going to be a web developer, um, having those fundamentals that under, the understanding of those fundamentals makes it so much easier to know where the boundaries are between. A library or framework, and the con or the environment, so like the browser uh, or Node or whatever, and then having an understanding of where the ba- boundary exists between the runtime and the language, and what each of those different things offer and what their limitations are. Um, so, yeah, getting to a practical example, I would say is, uh, I mean, I love talking about forms on the web and. Uh, uploads. And there's good examples for either or. Uh, I think with forms, with forms, it's really interesting because we have these, uh, we have these projects, I also played with SvelteKit. So we have these projects like SvelteKit and Remix that are very pro platform, very pro uh, progressive enhancement, which is another topic all on its own that is really fascinating. But the idea is you basically uh, ensure that your application runs at a minimum sort of environment. So in their case, or in our case, talking about the web, that'll work with just HTML primitives. 
Uh, we have two ways on in HTML to make a an HTTP request. We have uh, anchor links and we have form tags. Uh, but in the context of forms, you can take that and uh, build that out with HTML in such a way that it will work. And then you can bring in JavaScript if the environment supports it. So it's a browser that has JavaScript enabled, that has a fast enough run or a fast enough connection that it can download the JavaScript and parse it. And there's no errors and there's no uh, issues with this with a CDN or the ISP blocking it or an ad blocker or all of these things that all of these reasons why JavaScript could fail, right? You basically ensure that it'll work in the absence of those. And then when JavaScript is available, uh, you have a nicer user experience by submitting the form without a page refresh. Yeah. And there's so much, but there's so much in there. There's so many things that the that that uh, you have to do as a JavaScript developer and therefore you have to know about to maintain feature parity. Because if you break it, it sucks for the user. Right. But then doesn't the, don't these frameworks basically just do it for you in a way that you don't need to think about it or how they actually implement it? They do until you want to get off the happy path, right? So um, if you want your... Uh, so, so we're talking about forms, so we're talking about HTTP requests, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want the response from your HTTP request to behave slightly different on completion, you may not... The, the API that the framework authors designed may not allow for your needs, in which case you may have to re-implement your own solution. Well, from my perspective, frameworks exist because most of us are on the happy path most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, frameworks kind of provide... Until <laughs> we're not. Uh, no. And that's when the experts come in. Um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, frameworks exist because we built mostly the same applications again and again and again. And and that kind of defines what the happy path is. Uh, and that's what the frameworks strive to provide. It's again, when, yes. when you're, you know, kind of stretching the limits or approaching the boundaries is, is when, you know, when you can run into, into problems. And I totally a- appreciate that. And <laughs> unfortunately, I, I often spend some of my own time there. Um, but most developers don't need to, certainly most of the time. Yeah, yeah, certainly and, most of the time. And when they and do get there the... these days, they can always just ask chat GPT. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. And yeah, Wrong I answers mean, only. <laughs> and that, that is... That is the direction that we're that we're going towards, right? And that's fine. Like if if ChatGPT is going to be the next Google and can answer the questions, great. I mean, there are tools that can help us. I think again that that sort of comes back to you have to have a basic understanding of the fundamentals to know whether ChatGPT is bullshitting you or not. And AJ just exactly mount. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's that's the thing that Chat. I think ChatGPT is a better resource for experts than it is for beginners in some ways in that it gives you the vocabulary and the terms you need to search for. Like I can paste it. I love that I can paste in syntax and get it to tell me what a possible name of that syntax is because you cannot search on syntax. You can, yeah. it, it, and, and it can also take a description. So 
I was looking for the sums, the, the subset sum problem is what I was looking for. And I described the problem and then it told me this is the sums, the subset sum problem. It, it, it's a, a computer science problem of kind of sorting slash selecting integers from a pool. But, you know, so stuff like that where it's, it's really, really great. But then if you think that it's giving you correct information, that's where, and, and, it, and, it, and it's going to do great for homework assignments. It's going to do great for Hello Worlds. It's going to do great for things of which there's literally thousands upon thousands of examples that are almost identical. But as soon as there's any nuance or creativity, then it just completely blows up. And I'm just, I'm just worried about the noise factor on that one of people, the noise in the system creating a feedback loop where people get less, they get more ignorant because they think that they know <laughs> something that previously they knew they didn't know. Mm. I, and, and I would again, also go, put forward. Okay. Yeah, go for it. I was just going to say, I would also put forward though, that I've had the same problem with like Stack Overflow and what Google points me Oh at. yeah, for sure. Right? Um, Either because it's out of date or because somebody was wrong. And and a bunch of other people didn't realize they were wrong and thought they sounded smart and upvoted the thing. But you've got the source material, so you can see what they yeah. actually said in context rather than mixing and matching multiple contexts. And then yeah. you also have the comments that help you to understand with even greater context. Uh, you can see where there was an edit or an error because somebody said, oh, this is wrong, you should change it. You can look to see, oh yeah, it does have that included. And, and In, interestingly, I think that ChatGPT is just kind of raising or the bar or changing what we consider to be fundamental or not, going back to our discussion. Um, one of the purposes of, of successful frameworks or programming languages or, or systems is to get away from boilerplate. And, mm -hmm. and ChatGPT kind of tries to get you away from boilerplate by kind of providing you the boilerplate implementations, you know, out of the box. Uh, but, but again, going back to the concept of fundamentals, uh, it, it's interesting for me, and you mentioned a couple of frameworks, to see how what we mean by fundamentals fluctuates over time. Because if you're talking about the examples that you gave, like uh, forms, forms have been here forever and will remain a part of the web forever, They're like a defining aspect of what the web is. But if you but you mentioned a couple of the new frameworks that are coming out, like Quick and Solid, and all of a sudden you have a new fundamental, which we, by the way, discussed a few episodes back with Ryan Corniato, which is signals. Uh, mm -hmm. Like a year ago, nobody was talking about signals. And now they're a fundamental concept that's underlying Quick and underlying Solid and now also under starting to underline uh, um, Angular. Um, so it's interesting to see this kind of topic, which was nobody was thinking about, becoming a fundamental topic. And I would argue that you cannot properly use solid or quick. I don't know what the situation will be with Angular, but you cannot properly use solid or quick without understanding signals. 
I remember when we had this fancy new feature in in a library called Promises, right? And now it's just, I mean, it's just the cost of doing business on the web these days. Yeah, it's it's a funny or something one. like it's, it. It's I have to say something about Promises because people really were starting to understand Promises, and then a sink of weight came along, and now mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of people can get by with promises without True. actually understanding promises. Uh, until I resemble they, that comment. Until they, <laughs> until they don't. I, I mean, right. Until they hit I've the edge case, times. which is the same thing we've been saying with everything else. And that's where you need to understand what's going on. Yeah. But Sorry, if, I cut you, you off, understand, you, you have to understand callbacks. Because the callback is the fundamental. The event, the event, well, the event, the event loop, loop is, is the fundamental, yeah. and then the callback. And then a promise is simply an, an object that has an array of callbacks that should fire on success and an, a separate array of callbacks that should fire on error. And on top of that is async await. And yeah, yeah, but here's the thing, JJ, because if you, you use async await, you don't see the callbacks. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and that's, it's, I, I feel like async await is an advanced feature for for experts only, because if you understand all that's going on underneath, <laughs> then you can use everybody. them. But if you well, don't, yeah, exactly. if you don't understand it, if you don't understand it, then you you look at all the blog posts that are written and you copy and paste it. And you, if you're not an expert to know that this is expert only territory, you're, and you're you can in the get away with the map, you know? ninety yeah. percent of the time. I, I'm. I, I I get that, but what I'm saying is there's so much nuance to async await that if you if you say, oh, promises are are complicated, I can't understand this. So then you just throw async await around. One, you're you're using it incorrectly, you're using it as an anti-pattern. And and then when something goes wrong, you are completely clueless as to what and why. I feel like async await, I remember the very first time that I was using jQuery and having a race condition. And when I had that aha moment of, oh, I, I don't know if I had the words for it yet, but I, I got the, this is what the event loop is. This is what function scope is. I remember having that aha moment working on a project years ago. And I, I feel like async await takes us back to the set timeout days in, in many ways where it's like, can't figure out what it's doing, just set timeout to make it work. And, and that's kind of, <laughs> That's kind of how async await seems to be used. It's like, I can't figure it out. Maybe if I throw the word async in front of it, maybe if I throw the word await in front of it, maybe if I get rid of the word await. I always always recall the situation where uh, I I worked with a guy who was a fairly senior C++ developer and he was transitioning to become a front-end developer. So he was literally learning JavaScript as by himself as a seasoned developer. And then one day he comes to me and says, "I I need to do... Well, an Ajax request, I don't recall if, if Fetch was already around or he was using XML HTTP request. But basically, he said, I need to do this request and I need to block until it finishes. How do I block? And I remember his astounded look when I said, you don't. <laughs> and and these days, he'd probably throw in, 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 uh, in a weight on it and, you know, move along happily on his way. Yeah, I mean, it, it just comes down to like, if you, you you don't know what you don't know, 
right? And so people that are using async await are going to. And honestly, that's fine. Like, I think that if, like, I think that, I think that stumbling across these things and getting bit by them is the path to understanding the fundamental below. Cause that's when, that's when you're forced to. And there's a lot to be said about people that just build and build and build and ship and don't understand everything that goes. I mean, at, to, mm-hmm. at, to some layer, like at some level of abstraction, no one can t- explain everything that's going on. Oh, for sure. And that's fine. You know, I right. mean, D- Dan Abramoff has a really nice post that he's like, it was something about the things that he doesn't know. And everyone just assumes that he's an expert at everything because he's an expert at, you know, his one thing. Um He's not. Now I'm really feeling inadequate. Yeah, but <laughs> but related to that, for me, that's one of the main advantages of either having a mentor, an experienced mentor, yes. or working in an, in an organization that prioritizes uh, learning and advancement. Because on your own, you can learn the fundamentals, but there's a good probability that you won't know what the fundamentals are and certainly which fundamentals you should mm-hmm. learn. And working with somebody who's experienced, they will able be able to not only, you know, either just teach you the fundamentals or at the very least direct you towards the fundamentals and understanding what are the, those fundamentals that you need to know. Yeah, I have to say that I think that's one of the keys to this is when I was figuring out fundamentals to Ruby and then later when I was figuring out fundamentals to JavaScript, you know, and fun, fundamentals to anything else that I'm using, whether it's an open source tool or something like that, a lot of times I've had that experienced voice next to me, right? And so it wasn't so much that, hey, I'm going to mess this up. It was, hey, this is why it's not going to do what you expect it to, right? Here, here's Here's some other piece of knowledge that's going to unlock what this actually is. And so at the end of the day, then I can go, you know, going back to our previous example, I can go async await something without having a deep knowledge of promises or whatever that underlies it. But I know enough about it to know that, hey, look, if I do any of these things, it's not going to do what I think it's going to do. By the way, in this context, I need to give props to us that if you want to know about the, yeah, the fundamentals of JavaScript, we had a whole bunch of ap- of episodes about it. You know, the things, uh, yeah. the JavaScript things that you must know and the JavaScript things that you should know. And we basically kind of listed out those things that you should or maybe shouldn't need to know. So both what the fundamentals are and what they aren't. Similarly, we had a few episodes on the fundamentals of React. Not the implement, not the specific API details, because you can't really do that in a podcast. But you know the basic concepts that are underlying React and kind of you know get you and like help you to get what React is about, as it were. So again, the fundamental concepts of like what what is the VDOM? Why why does it even exist? Why why is it needed? I think that without having some understanding of the... You can work in React without knowing about the VDOM at all. I mean, can you? Certainly you can. You can, you know, pay the bills, have a good job, steady income, whatever. But you're limiting your abilities to, you know, make the best use of your primary primary tool that's in your toolkit. 
and and it you know it does limit you not knowing for example what the vdom is in my opinion at least yeah and also in debugging i know that the the vdom in reacts uh like synthetic event system is good to understand how it works that it's there and good enough to understand to know that you know, we should we should really hope that they finally get rid of it <laughs> <laughs> basically the potholes um yeah that 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 kind of brings us back to the fundamentals like you just say well i i don't know i've been playing around with some interesting ideas of uh going way back to the like just vanilla js stuff um and using html as a declarative language to uh to to set the rules for how the http uh requests should work so html defines the action and the method on the form and the eng type to set the the content type and then the inputs define their validation logic and you just use javascript to like you can use the same javascript function to then submit every single form you don't need uh you know i don't know how many how many projects i've seen where uh, every form on the page has its own custom JavaScript event handler because it has to submit to a unique API endpoint and has to JSON, you know, JSON stringify all of the inputs that all have their own uh, state management binding so that you can grab it from memory. And it's just like the browser has all of that built in already. And you don't need, you don't need robust HTTP libraries or validation libraries, unless maybe that is a major part of your application. One thing that definitely used to annoy me, we see a bit less of it these days, especially thanks to progressive enhancement, is that when a lot of the frameworks came came out, like one of the first examples they would give would be form validation and, and stuff like that. And, you know, but basically, that's what HTML5, which is now just HTML, was created for. I mean, all this functionality is just built into the, into the browser. You don't need a framework if all you need is like the basic ability to do some form validation and submit a form. Uh, the browser just does it for you. And, and, and in many ways, uh, frameworks just get in the way. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm happy to see that that you know, kind of thanks to Remix and now to SvelteKit, that that the, the frameworks are kind of embracing the way that the browser does forms. So, so this also gets into an interesting topic that we were talk that we were discussing before uh, we started recording, um, and that is that Remix. Well, I'm not sure about Remix, but a lot of these libraries are enabling. Um, RPC, which is uh, a way to basically define a function within, like co-locate your backend function with your front-end logic. And this becomes interesting in things like, uh, I think React Server Components is going to be, or is RPC, uh, SolidJS supports RPC, Quick does RPC with their... um, you know, these server functions dollar. that end with the dollar sign yeah. or whatever. Yeah, they're server-side, they're server-side functions. Uh, Remix does their own version of declaring a function that's going to be a server function. They do that with named exports. 
uh, Spelt Kit does their own version with a separate file. And it's interesting because on one hand, it's great that it allows developers to co-locate their display logic with their backend logic. But again, if you don't understand the fundamentals, you don't understand that some, you may not understand that in this one same file, you have front-end code and back-end code. And there are some things that you can only do on the front-end because that's the only place that the window object is available. And there's some things you can only do on the back-end because that's the only place that your database credentials should be available. And if you don't really understand that, you could confuse the two and either cause your back-end to crash or cause your front-end to expose uh, you know, your, secrets. <laughs> yeah, your credentials. Yeah, the, the funny thing, though, is that RPC, uh, remote procedure calls, which is really where we, we kind of discussed it in, previous, mm. in past episodes as well. It's kind of like a really old term. It, it goes all, you know, back to the 80s. Um, yeah. So this whole concept exists in order to, again, uh, avoid the fundamentals, as it were. Instead of working in a yes. low-level uh, uh, network, you know, protocol that exposes and highlights the fact that you're sending data over a network, uh, the R RPC strives to, you know, put uh, a facade of a, of a function call or a procedure call on top of that. So you're working with backend code as if you're just invoking a, a function like you would with other front-end code. Um, and and it's, it's a really interesting question of if I'm trying to obscure the fundamentals, you know, it's kind of interesting that if I then don't make sure to understand the fundamentals, I might get into a lot of trouble. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's fascinating. It, it's, a, it's a point that, um, it, it's kind of funny because I feel like I, I talk a lot about uh, fundamentals and web platform primitives and concepts like regressive enhancement. And a lot of these things are not part of the hype cycle, which sort of makes me feel like I'm missing something or, or why, you know, why don't I get it? But when I actually write code and I explore with these uh, bleeding edge technologies, there's so much overlap there as far as uh, I want to understand to the best of my degree how these things work and how I can implement the things that I already know and where it makes sense to separate those two. Like in some cases, just because a framework can do all of these things for you, like, you know, you can do some React binding that maybe controls, I don't have a good example, but, but there's things that a framework can do for you, but it may not, it may make more sense to actually pull that instead of using the framework or library pull it into its own little package like JavaScript utility that can work across any JavaScript runtime and across any framework. So sure, there's probably not a lot of need for people to migrate the same application to multiple different frameworks or libraries, but it can protect you if you have code just written at the more primitive level that you control. That can protect you from either migration stories or even upgrade stories like, uh, you know, going from React version X to version Y, something like that. But yeah, getting back to the, 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 the RPC stuff, it's really fascinating because I'm, I'm finding that um, where the overlap is, is you have a tool that lets you, by, conven by convention, define 
a server function. And then how it actually works is uh, there's a transpilation step that takes that same file that has front end code and back end code and like separates them and, and basically creates an API endpoint for that RPC. Now, RPC itself, Dan, like you said, is a very old concept and it's not even a technology. It's like a, it's a, what is it? Principle or a concept? Design pattern? Sort yeah, of like a standard a design, like REST is? A design pattern. Yeah, I think a design... A standard, yeah. A design pattern is probably the best term, I think. Sure, sure. So it's basically a way for you to define a function that can be called from an application onto a different server, right? And in the web, the medium that we use to invoke that RPC function is HTTP. So what these tools are doing is allowing you to conveniently write code uh, that in the source code lives together, but in the compiled code actually are completely separate, right? And so you end up with a server function that lives somewhere in some deeply nested folder that the library author came up with and knows how to find. Uh, and that way, when you finally submit the form that this framework that you wrote in this framework and you invoke that function, it's actually sending an HTTP request to this endpoint that can then do the remote procedural call, call the function and come up with some sort of response. If and, you want to see another good example of that, Austin, you and I know it well with Vue. If you look at single file components, right? You have your template, you've got your script, you've got your style block, you know, if you so choose to use it. And I saw a really good blog post at one point that talked about how that worked and how the, the, the view behind the scenes basically takes that and says, okay, I got to split it apart here and I'm going to interpret this this way and this this way and do different things with them. So it's, as you're describing your RPCs, I'm thinking, oh, that sounds a lot like Vue and its single file components. Yeah, I mean, Vue doesn't handle Vue doesn't handle the RPC part, but that is the this um, is a concept, the overall concept of taking one thing and splitting them apart into different parts. It allows you to do author things much more easily. Yes, right. It's it's a layer that allows you to do it, but behind the scenes, it's doing all the work to split everything out. The in the the interesting thing that I see with the fact that uh, effectively all frameworks are now, almost all frameworks are now adding some sort of RPC mechanism, and you listed most of them, is that previously when we implemented an endpoint for an API, you know, we were fairly explicit about it. I mean, not always, like, set server side props is a sort of an API mechanism, and we were less explicit about it. But in most cases, you know, you knew that you were implementing an endpoint and you would reuse that same endpoint across various usages. I mean, if, if, the, back, if the front end needed to communicate with the back end, well, these are the APIs that you, that you had available to you and you might enhance them and add capabilities or version them or whatever. And now with these RPC mechanisms, we're creating a lot We'll, I, I think we'll see a pattern where we'll be creating lots of micro API endpoints, you know, one-offs as it were. So I need to get something from the server. I'm not going to think about the various existing API endpoints. I'm just going to throw in yet another uh, RPC uh, implementation and, you know, just do whatever I need to get done. And it's going to create a lot of coupling between the front end and the back end but that might not be a, such a bad thing 
if you're doing both in the same of, in the context of the same application and the same framework and the same version. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and this gets this gets kind of interesting because it it kind of harkens back to, in my opinion, the the topic of uh, the progressive enhancement thing that um, library authors are kind of promoting, but at the same time, uh, let's see, there a lot of them are building tools so that you can implement progressive enhancement without having to think about it, without having to understand all of these underlying fundamental principles, right? Which is great because that's that's really the solution for solving things like accessibility or uh, progressive enhancement, which is could relate to accessibility, um, which is that you, you provide the tooling that makes it really easy for developers by default to sort of follow the, 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 the correct patterns and difficult to implement things incorrectly, uh, whether they know what they're doing or not. So with progressive enhancement and these RPC patterns, uh, yes, you end up with a lot of tight coupling, but depending on how the library works, uh, it has to enable you to also know what you're doing. Uh, that's hard to explain. I'm, I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to throw any uh, sort of libraries under the bus. But uh, I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is the things that I look for uh, when I'm building applications with these. The things that are sort of table stakes is if you're going to give me an RPC endpoint and you're going to respond with a function that I can call that eventually produces an HTTP request, I need to have access to the URL where that function is going to run. It can't just be some magic function that returns a, a, a component, a form component that I can just use and not actually see, be able to manipulate uh, with the web browser. Why? So I want to be able, why not? No, why? You're saying you it has to be it. I'm asking why. Yeah, so it has to have that because I want access to the uh, I want to be able to uh, explicitly define what the form action is going to do, which has to point to a URL, which presumably would be connected to that uh, RPC endpoint. And the reason why I want to do that is because I build my applications to uh, support progressive enhancement. So that form needs to be pointed to some URL. So I need to know where it exists. Yeah, but these days with some of these frameworks, all you just do is in the action, you just put in the function name. And they just handle mm -hmm. the magic wiring for you. So even in that yeah. context, you don't, re you know, they kind of, re by introducing RPC, in at least again, in the context of internal APIs, not external APIs, they kind of replace the concept of URLs or URL endpoints yeah. with functions. Uh, so my question is, if I have a globally named function that I, you know, exported function that I can import, or even maybe, you know, like you said, implement even in the context of the same file, why do I need to understand the underpinning fundamentals of the network protocol and the way that data gets marshaled or serialized, deserialized over the wire? I mean, why is that really fundamental knowledge? that I need to have? I'm not sure. I mean, what, what's your opinion on it? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, again, so these 
frameworks are, are, are kind of new and these, these tools are new and I'm, I'm sure that there's uh, work being done. So I don't want to disparage any specific one by name. Um, but essentially, I've, I've been building applications and when I come in, when I run into uh, something that I cannot do myself, knowing how to build something from the ground up. So knowing if I wanted to build a form with just HTML and I wanted to submit it to uh, a specific endpoint, um, I want to know where that endpoint is. And I and some of them do give you a function that you can return. And sure, you can just use that function reference anywhere then that you would in place of a, a string URL, right? Um, then that's just fine. As long as I, maybe I don't have to explicitly know uh, where where that URL is. But as long as I have some reference to it that, that treats it as a URL or a string, right? Um, the reason being that... Uh, what was the what was the problem that I had was uh, in order to create my own form from scratch and do my whole progressive enhancement thing, I have to have access to that URL. And if not, if it's some sort of abstraction layer, and these libraries are doing some sort of sort of a critical step in this HTTP back and forth, is this serialization that a lot of these libraries are doing some sort of serialization of the data that captures, I mean, uh, closure is not the right term, but it captures all the data that it needs to send and maybe how the function needs to be responded when it's sent to the server and, and then sent back or whatever. Um, that library is handling all of the communication actually at the HTTP layer, which is some magic that I can't recreate. I, I, and at that point, I'm so, I'm so, I'm, at that point, I'm so bought in and so dependent on the library doing, it, doing its thing correctly that I become uh, a slave to their patterns and their knowledge and their upgrade paths. And I just like the flexibility of being able to say, okay, I'm going to take my, my business logic and, you know. I kind of, in, in that context, I think it's useful to make a distinction between, I, I, for lack of better terms, public and private API endpoints. If Even if, by public, I don't. I, you're still just using it within your organization. Uh, public, I mean, in the way that, in, a, in the sense that it transcends the particular implementation. So, if it's a public end, API endpoint, then you you really want to just you know adhere to the web fundamentals. It needs to support like if you're going to send data, you you want to support post requests. You want to describe the API in a way that it accepts either JSON or form data or both, uh, and and uh, and that's basically it. And you know, like in in Svelte, you can now very easily implement these sort of things with you know just calling some you know, function called post uh, or or get uh, all caps. Um, but if you're actually implementing RPC and using the RPC mechanisms. Like the server dollar, whether it's quick or or, mm -hmm. or or solid bling, you're in you're I think you're kind of intentionally and in, and giving up on that. It's no longer a public API; it's a private API. It's part of the implementation details. And if you're going to replace your implementation because it's it's wholly internal to that implementation you're probably going to have to replace that endpoint as well. You're not really going to support it 
going forward. Because in all probability, the way that, I don't know, for example, React marshals data over the wire in the context of React server components is wholly different than the way in which Quick marshals data for its RPC mechanism. And it's just not going to be compatible with one another. And I, and I you know, I, I, the, I, I recently, you know, people talk about how um, React server components is kind of bringing web fundamentals back and it's HTML and it's HTTP, but it isn't. The RPC mechanism no. isn't HTTP. It, well, it is HTTP, but it isn't HTML over HTTP. It isn't even JSON over HTTP. It's their own, you know, protocol over HTTP. And and it's like I said, it's it's fundamentally different than the protocols that other frameworks will use unless they explicitly decide to, you know, adhere to some new standard that the React team are inventing or something like that. Yeah, this this will be um, a really interesting, uh, a really interesting thing to watch play out because the question becomes: um, as we adopt, as it as RPC becomes a, a larger and larger pattern in our applications, do we treat those as traditional API endpoints, and what should they receive and what should they uh, respond with? So, Dan, you you mentioned how. If you're using RPC, that becomes a private endpoint as opposed to a public one that you might consider like a REST API that you know receives and returns JSON. Um, I like to try and maintain. I, I, like I, I want my uh, HTTP request to basically work with an HTML form if I can make it. If I can make that happen, that way I can enhance it with JavaScript. In, include the RPC things, and then the layer at which that uh, HTTP request is made, I need to understand if there needs to be some sort of serialization or some sort of HTTP header that tells the backend what to do with the request. And then I need to know how that backend needs to respond and what it needs to respond with. Does it need to be HTML? Does it need to be JSON? Does it need to be some sort of serialized uh, some sort of serialized response that then the client that sent it knows how to deserialize and do some sort of action on. A good example of this is um, Solid Start. They have some really interesting, uh, some really interesting patterns around how you can actually uh, do server-defined redirects, so that then when it gets to the client, the client automatically redirects the page. Well, that's all built on some of the fundamentals. And if you use their built-in tools, it's going to handle that whole lifecycle for you. And you're not going to be, you're going to be none the wiser. But if you try and build it yourself or recreate it yourself, you have to understand and pick apart what that HTTP request looks like going out and coming back. We shall see. All right, I'm going to push this to picks just because I saw what time it is and we're well past being able to end on time. Let's have AJ go first. AJ, what are your picks? My wife and I started watching The Mentalist. And good that's show. been yeah, that's been pretty good. It's an old show. Uh, and there's probably some other things I could pick, but I'm just uh I'm I don't know. I 
I don't remember what's what's been great since last week. Sounds good. We'll put that down for a pick. Steve, what are your picks? Uh, no other. Oh, the only other than the the high point of the episode, the dad jokes. I will mention that Austin and I had a very similar conversation on views on view, uh, probably about two or three weeks ago. It's episode two hundred and fourteen, uh, and it was just he and I, and so I was able to get words in. And uh, so we talked about uh, <laughs> fundamentals and some of his recent blog posts that have been on Hacker News. If you do search for Austin Gill on Hacker News, you get uh, quite a list of blog posts that he has had on there. Some of them um, about the very things we are talking today regarding um, building HTML forms uh, and file uploads and things like that. Um, and they are in the show notes for Views on View 214. Uh, for the dad jokes of the week. <clears throat> uh, the other day, my wife asked me, did you eat that pizza that I was saving in the fridge? I said, no, I ate it in the living room. <laughs> she didn't appreciate that. Um, uh, the other night, I tried making a nice candlelit dinner, but uh, I think it would have cooked a lot quicker in the oven. Okay. And then finally, somebody came to me the other day and said, why don't you write a book instead of just making these stupid dad jokes? I said, well, that's a novel idea. <laughs> Those are my picks. All right. Very nice. Dan, what are your picks? Well, um, so my first pick is uh, we just got back uh, from uh, uh uh, attending the conference uh, IJS uh, at L uh, London, followed by a vacation in France. So my first pick is actually going to be France because France is beautiful. We visited certain parts that we've never been at, uh, Lyon, Avignon, um, certain parts in the French Alps and, and so on. Um, for example, we visited this beautiful village on... It's literally like stuck to the side of a mountain. I, I, I was going to prepare the name, uh, its name, but then I forgot. So I'll, I'll try to throw it in by the end of my picks. But anyway, it, it's all amazingly beautiful. It's a, it's a wonderful area to visit. And, and I highly recommend it. So, and also as a part of this trip, I got to meet some, uh, friends, including, you know, a number of people that uh, have been on this podcast in the past. So I met uh, in London, I met uh, Bruce Lawson. We had several years ago talking about uh, uh, semantic HTML and accessibility. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. Uh, I also had a really nice dinner with Ryan Corniato, who we had several times on, on the show, talking about uh, solid and signals and stuff like that. And uh, during the trip in France, I got together with Joab Weiss from Google, who we had on our show talking about Power Vitals. So um, lots of fun uh, had all, all around. Um, so that would be uh, my the first pick. The second pick has to do with the topic of today's show uh, about fundamentals. So in a couple of uh, few weeks from now, we're going to have, I think, a joint episode with with the uh, team from uh, React Roundup, and one of the guys there is is uh, Jack Harrington, who makes great videos about the React. 
And one of the videos that I liked especially, I might have mentioned this one in the past, is one about React streaming in depth. And what's really great about it is he shows how streaming now works in Next.js, how it works in Remix, but also he also does a kind of a DIY implementation of, of streaming. So you really see how the fundamentals of streaming work on the inside, which I think is a great thing in order to properly understand how this technology works. So I guess we'll put the link to this video in, in the show notes. It's highly recommended. And now that I'm back in Israel, I'm back demonstrating for Israel to remain a democracy. So that's uh, my third and final pick. And those are my picks for today. All right. Uh, I'll go and then I'll let Austin go. Um, I've got a few things to pick. Uh, the first one is, and you can't really see it if you're watching the video. Maybe if I bend my head down a little bit, you can kind of see a little bit of scratches on my head. Um, I'm going to pick it because I really like it. And then I'm going to warn you <laughs> if you shave your head uh, like I do, all right? Um, I'd rather just have all the hair gone instead of that nice ring around the back. Um, so I bought, uh, I, I just decided I wanted to change up my shaving routine. And so I bought this, it's called the Bevel Safety Razor. Um, and it, it's this heavy duty razor and you like clip the razor in and like the razor blade in and then you shave with it. And, you know, so I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to try this out, tried it on my face. And it was so it was so nice, right? I'm like, this is awesome. I'm gonna do my head, and I cut my head up so bad with it. But I, I, I'll tell you, <laughs> I love because I've been there, Chuck. I've right. So I, I, I really, I really loved what it did to my face. So I kept it, right? I didn't send it back to Amazon and say this is garbage, right? Um, so if you don't shave your head, I highly recommend that you get the shaver. And if you do, then I recommend you use something else. Uh, the other pick I have, I, I skipped the board game. I'll come back to that. Um, so the other uh, shaver that I've used, I just decided to see if I get an electric one uh, that would do it because I'd seen right. a few of them that people seem to really like. And um, I tried like some of the electric shavers that are made for your face on my head before, and it either wound up pulling my hair or, uh, you know, what little there is. Uh, or it would, um, like, anyway, it was an unpleasant experience. And so I was like, what the heck? I'll try it, and I will send it back if it doesn't work. And uh, these are made specifically for your head. They have, like, six spinning blades on them. And so, you, you know, you push it onto your head, and it kind of contours to your head. And it's it's been so nice. And it, I'm kind of picky. I like a really close shave. And this one's, like, not all the way to the scalp. But it does a good enough job that I don't feel like I'm hitting bristles on my head when I rub my head. So um, I'm going to pick that. Um, now to board games, um, and I'm going to look it up on Board Game Geek so that I can uh, tell you the right game here. So um, we played this game. It's called Mystic Veil. And... It's kind of a different game. It's it's a card game. It's not a board game, but it has like a bunch of different kinds of pieces. Um, board Game Geek rates it at 2.26, which means it's pretty approachable for casual players. I think we played it through once with four people. 
And it was definitely a fun game. So the idea is, is you start out with your starter deck and then um, you, you can play as many cards as you want. But once you have three curses, then, um, then you're out and you basically just get a money piece and you're, you know, or a crystal and then, and then you're done. But if you stop before you hit three or maybe it was four um, revealed, then you can use the stuff on the card to get better cards. And they're not cards. What they are is this game actually comes with sleeves for the card. And so what you do is you grab one of the cards that you bought and you slide it in the sleeve with your card because there are three slots on the card that you can fill. And so some of them are blank and some of them have one slot filled and some of them have more than one slot filled that you start with. And so you essentially deck build by building out your cards, right? And so when you play a card, then you get all the effects on the card. So you can get the different kinds of currency that lets you get the different kinds of cards. So there's some other cards that give you just bonuses every turn, right? And so at the end of the game, you're trying to come out with the most victory points. Anyway, it was really fun. Really, really fun. And so if you're looking for kind of a different mechanic on a deck building game, I mean, this is it. I really, really liked it. And so uh, I'm going to pick that for my board game. And then uh, one last pick. So, uh, and this is something I picked up. You mentioned Jack Harrington. I was a guest on React uh, Roundup a few weeks ago. And I asked him about his green screen setup and he uses this ATEM Mini. Um, I, I think I got the ATEM Mini Pro. Uh, it's by Blackmagic. And it, it'll allow you to do the green screen behind you um, while you're running, while you record. And so I'm still playing with like where I stand and, you know, my lighting and stuff. But I've recorded a handful of videos and I've been really happy with it. Um, the only other thing that I've run into and I'm still like tweaking, like I said, is that um, if I wear a black shirt or a white shirt, it tends to pick up some elements on the black or white shirt. But if I wear like a blue shirt or a red shirt, then in front of the green screen, it works great. And, you know, and so I can put whatever I want behind me. Um, if I wear a black shirt and I have a dark background, that doesn't work so well. But that kind of makes sense when you really say it out loud. So anyway, I've been really happy with it. Um, and so I'm going to pick the Blackmagic ATEM Mini. And uh, yeah, if you're looking to do some green screen stuff, check it out. Um, but yeah, those are my picks. Austin, uh, before you have some Austin, picks for us? Before Austin starts, I just mentioned a village whose name I forgot. And I looked it up, and so I just want to mention it. Uh, I'm probably going to butcher the French name. It's uh, Mostier Saint Marie. It's a village in the uh, Alpes de Haute Provence in France, and it's too, it's amazingly beautiful. It's like a village, a medieval village, stuck to the side of a mountain. And uh, if you can get a chance to you know to visit, I very highly recommend visiting there. It's just amazingly beautiful. And you very probably cool. get some good exercise walking up hills. Yeah, for sure. Right? The people there really need to be in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> just to get around. Well, to get up the hill, to get down the hill. Yeah. Never, never mind. Never mind. Anyway, Austin, what, what were your picks? Okay, yeah. So um, I work for a company called Akamai. I would be a little bit remiss if I didn't mention them because uh, they are a Great company uh, with a really good product. They do content delivery network, uh, web application firewall. Uh, we do the whole cloud hosting, uh, cloud computing 
thing now with object storage. Uh, and I've had the chance to... So we didn't get into a lot of the file uploads things, which was a shame because that's like the most recent deep dive series that I've worked on. And one of the things that we covered at the end was uh, how do you protect your applications from malware if you're enabling like public file uploads? And uh, one of the products that was really cool to work with in Akamai was uh, the malware protection scanner, which essentially allows you to block uh, malware from even getting to your server because it gets scanned at the Akamai edge. So unlike mm. some ways of protecting from malware where it like scans file names or you have to do, you know, MIME type checking. All of those have some sort of, uh, basically, unless you're actually scanning the file contents, uh, you, it's really, really difficult to filter out malware. And um, that was a cool service. It does have uh, file size limits, but it works really cool and it runs on the edge. So the any bad file that it uh, triggers as, you know, as bad uh, never even makes it to your server. So that was cool. Um, and I should also say that the work that I do for them is mostly I consider myself, I mean, it's a developer advocacy role, but I kind of am more in a, a developer education role. So I get to write some content. Uh, I have a couple posts that I'll share in the show notes about uh, f- uh, forms and file uploads. And mostly I'm not really trying to sell you any sort of products, but I do think that Akamai has... Um, Definitely in the CDN world and the and the web application firewall world, I think it's like uh, best in breed, and the biggest companies in the world trust us. So that's been fun, um, and I can share a link to get a hundred dollars of credit to any listener that wants. Uh, and as far as not tech, well, actually, sorry, one more tech related thing. Uh, I've been working with Solid Start lately, and. It's been a breath of fresh air in terms of something that uses JSX but isn't limited or isn't doesn't have to do like the HTML4 attributes or the class name thing. You can just do class and HTML4. Uh, that's been really nice as far as the templating side of things. They have a really good approach to uh, the RPC solution. They have you know signals, and I think it makes it easy to sort of build in these build with fundamentals in mind and be able to break out of their tooling or their abstraction where necessary or use their level of of abstractions to like simplify your life. And uh, yeah, I guess one non-tech pick would be uh, Stash uh, Licorice Tea. Licorice Tea by Stash. Really tasty. That oh, that's interesting. interesting. I, I love licorice, so I probably need to give that a try. I hate licorice, ironically. <laughs> I can't stand it, but this stuff is so good. And I'm Ash not even tea. a huge fan of tea. So two things that I don't like, but somehow it's a magic combination. Hmm. Yeah, I don't drink tea with like tea leaves, but if it's made from something else, that, that might be interesting. Anyway, I usually cool. drink tea with a cup myself, but that's... Uh, wow, gosh. More dad jokes. Austin, if people oh, yeah, want to find you online or see what you're working on, where do they find you? Uh, yeah, austingill.com. That's G-I-L. Um, it's more efficient that way. Less, you know, storage, whatever. Uh, but yeah, I have all my stuff on there. I mean, I'm doing live streams, video series, blog posts, uh, posting cute pictures of my dog on Twitter. So it's got everything on there. So were you Gil with two L's before Y2K? Ah, uh, that efficient. joke escapes. More official? What? Efficient. 
yeah, more efficient. With the date storage. You might be too young. To yeah, no, I re- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was there. I remember the whole like ATM scare and planes flying out of or planes, oh. yeah, dropping out of the sky. Well, it had to do with date storage and two years versus four. Anyway, oh, yeah, I tried. Hey, forever. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. Till next time, folks. Max out. Thanks, Austin, for coming.